Welcome to this edition of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association's podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to patient care. Hello, my name is Katie Wagner and I'm a CT surgery resident at the University of Michigan. Today, I'll be talking to Dr. Jenna Romano, who's one of our congenital cardiac surgeons here at Michigan. She's an associate professor in the Department of Cardiac Surgery and the Department of Pediatrics, um, and is also the surgical director of our Pediatric Cardiothoracic Intensive Care Unit. Today, we'll be discussing scimitar syndrome, a, a form of partial anomalous pulmonary venous return. Dr. Romano, a three-year-old presents with a history of recurrent respiratory infections. A chest x-ray obtained for a recent admission demonstrated an enlarged cardiac silhouette and a sickle-shaped shadow along the right heart border. So first, um, would you mind telling us what is scimitar syndrome? So when you hear the classic chest x-ray finding of a sickle-shaped shadow that kind of runs along the right heart border, that immediately directs you towards scimitar syndrome. And really, the name of the syndrome is from that sickle shape of the, um, basically what it is, is the anomalous pulmonary venous drainage of all or part of the right lung that drains into the inferior vena cava, which gives that appearance on chest x-ray. These patients will have an obligate left to right shunt as a result of this anomalous pulmonary venous return to their right atrium. And as a result, that's how you get right atrial and right ventricular enlargement over time. So that's where you might see an enlarged cardiac silhouette. Other things that can go along with this syndrome can include uh, hypoplasia of the right lung or the right pulmonary artery, sometimes associated with pulmonary hypertension. These patients, if the right lung is hypoplastic, may have more of, more of a mesocardic or dextrocardic position to their heart. In patients that present more commonly in, as an infant, they may also have an anomalous uh, systemic arterial blood supply to a portion or sequestration of their right lower lobe. And in about 70% of patients, they'll have some other associated cardiac anomaly. Most commonly, that's just simply either a patent foramenal valley or atrial septal defect, but occasionally you can see more complex other associated defects. And finally, with scimitar syndrome, you can also see some other abnormalities, which can include a horseshoe-shaped lung, a diaphragmatic phrenic cyst, or even an absence of the pericardium in that region. What is the incidence of scimitar syndrome, and how do these patients typically present? So overall, scimitar syndrome is an incredibly rare cardiac anomaly. You'll see that in approximately one to three births out of 100,000, it comprises approximately three to 6% of all the varieties of partial anomalous pulmonary venous return that we see. Obviously, it's possible that the true instance could be higher as sometimes patients are asymptomatic and, do not, and are not ultimately diagnosed. The majority of patients with scimitar syndrome have just anomalous pulmonary venous drainage without some of the other associated abnormalities of the right lung. So those patients tend to present early in childhood with symptoms that are similar to what you'd see with a child with a large atrial septal defect or a large left to right shunt with right atrial and right ventricular enlargement. Most commonly, they'll just present with frequent respiratory infections. Rarely will they have true heart failure type of symptoms. Um, when you see this in adult patients, it's again similar to an adult that has had a large missed atrial septal defect where they may ultimately develop some progressive exercise intolerance that may, may bring them to presentation. Most commonly, it's really that a patient gets a chest x-ray for some other reason. You'll see a chest x-ray that has that classic sickle-shaped uh, 
drainage of the pulmonary veins along the right heart border. Infants with uh, significant congestive heart failure and Simotar syndrome are fairly rare. Usually those are the patients that will have associated hypoplasia of the right lung and potentially a significant uh, systemic arterial collateral that's supplying a portion of their lung that will contribute to their heart failure symptoms. Or if you have an infant that also has another associated heart defect, say a ventricular septal defect along with the scimitar and anomalous systemic arterial supply to the right lung, all those in combination will put that patient into more significant heart failure and have them present earlier. Obviously for the infants, because they do have usually more associated, more complexity to their scimitar syndrome, they do have worse outcomes compared to the pediatric or adult population. Really, ultimately, the time that patients will present is really dependent upon the amount of blood flow to their pulmonary circulation relative to their systemic circulation or the QP to QS. So for a patient who may just have a QP to QS of 1.5 to 1 or even up to 2 to 1, those patients may not present until they're a bit older. Um, obviously, in a patient that would have the anomalous systemic supply, arterial supply, as well as, say, another associated heart defect that may give them a QP to QS of 3 or 4 to 1, they're going to present earlier. What factors influence the QP to QS in these patients? So there are several factors that will contribute. One, the amount of venous drainage of the right lung that is being anomalously drained. So if it is the entire right lung, then theoretically your QP to QS should be 2 to 1. In some patients, it may just be the lower lobe or middle and lower lobe. So there, in those patients, the QP to QS is going to be lower. In patients that may still have their whole right lung draining uh, via the anomalous uh, scimitar vein to the right atrium, if they have a hypoplastic right pulmonary artery or hypoplastic lung where they may not be getting equivalent flow to the right and left lungs that we normally expect, again, if there's less flow to the right lung, that's going to lower your QP to QS. And as I mentioned before, if you have a patient who has scimitar syndrome with either additional aeropulmonary collaterals via uh, off of the descending aorta or other aeropulmonary collaterals that can develop between the chest wall and the lung, those will thereby increase your QP to QS. In general, a QP to QS of greater than 2 to 1 is, is going to create some symptoms and bring them to presentation. Are there any known risk factors or causes of scimitar syndrome? As with most congenital heart defects, we really don't know what the etiology is for scimitar syndrome. We know that at roughly six to seven weeks gestational age is when the venous drainage of the lungs is training from is transitioning from systemic venous drainage to cardiac venous drainage. So somewhere during that time of gestation is when this abnormality probably occurs. Um, there have been some descriptions of familial associated scimitar syndrome, but there really has been no clear genetic pathway that's been delineated. Uh, what are the key components of the history and findings on physical exam for a patient with scimitar syndrome? So it's just always important to elicit if there's any symptomatology for the patient. Again, for a child or adult, you'd be looking for a history of recurrent respiratory infections or exercise intolerance. In infants presenting with scimitar syndrome, they usually are in congestive heart failure, and symptoms for an infant with congestive heart failure are going to be tachypnea and sweating with feeds, failure to thrive is what you're really going to be trying to elicit from the parents. In terms of physical exam, it can sometimes be a little bit hard to really elicit anything specific for scimitar syndrome. Over time, as you get right heart enlargement, you can get a bit of an increased cardiac impulse. You may hear a diastolic rumble over the tricuspid valve or a flow murmur along the left upper sternal border just because of increased flow through the right side of the heart. 
Our patient has been having frequent respiratory infections, and there are no notable findings on physical exam. What imaging would you obtain next, and what are you looking for with each imaging modality? So, as occurred with this patient, this is commonly picked up when a patient's getting a chest x-ray for some other reason. What's thought to maybe be an asthma exacerbation in the ER, they get a chest x-ray and get referred. So, really, echocardiography is usually diagnostic that can delineate uh, how many pulmonary veins are draining normally to the left atrium and thereby how many are draining abnormally via the scimitar vessel. can usually pick up any other intracardiac abnormalities, such as a patent foramen ovale, an atrial septal defect, or any other associated cardiac defect. You can also get a sense of the size of the branch pulmonaries to get a sense that there is some hypoplasia of the right pulmonary artery. You can also get a bit of a sense of uh, pulmonary artery pressures based on uh, if the patient has even a small degree of tricuspid regurgitation that can estimate your RV pressures to give you a sense of maybe the patient may have some elevated pulmonary vascular resistance. Um, other than that, you could consider getting a perfusion scan. It would give you a sense of how much flow you have going to each uh, lung, especially if you had a patient that you were concerned that the lung appeared hypoplastic to get a sense of exactly the differential flow. The downside with a lung perfusion scan is really it's a fairly high dose of radiation, and I don't think it's incredibly helpful in further directing your surgical decision-making. Aside from echo, I think what is also helpful is either a CT image or a cardiac MRI. Uh, the, with either one, it gives you a sense of exactly the relationship of the anomalous vein draining the right lung to the inferior vena cava, as well as the association to the left atrium. It can also give you a sense of, if it, with a cardiac MRI, that can also give you differential uh, pulmonary blood flow. So that would give you both pieces of information, both cross-sectional imaging as well as a perfusion scan. You could also pick up from these uh, imaging studies if there is an aorta pulmonary collateral coming off the descending aorta supplying that portion of lung, and that would be a reason to go to the cath lab. So we got into a little bit um, in the last question, but what exactly is the role of cardiac cath for these patients? So again, you can get all the information you need in terms of surgical planning for the scimitar vein via echo or other cross-sectional imaging. The reason to do a cardiac catheterization would be one, if you know that the patient has an aortal pulmonary collateral vessel that you would like to uh, embolize or coil occlude, or in a patient who may be presenting older where you're concerned about pulmonary vascular resistance issues and whether or not they are a surgical candidate. But obviously a cardiac catheterization does require uh, vascular access, which does have some associated risk, especially in smaller patients. So you really want to have a clear clinical indication before you send a patient to the cath lab. We obtain an echo which reveals a dilated right atrium and right ventricle and a small ASD with left to right flow. The right upper, middle, and lower pulmonary veins all drain via the scimitar vein into the IVC. So first, does this patient meet criteria for intervention? And generally, what are the indications for repair? This patient definitely reaches criteria for intervention. One, he's already presenting with symptoms of recurrent respiratory infections, and we also have evidence for right heart enlargement. So both of those are automatic criteria for intervention. In general, you're going to look for either in the pediatric or in the adult population history of symptoms, which sometimes can be a little bit difficult to elicit, uh, symptoms of right heart volume overload aside from the recurrent respiratory infections. And evidence for a significant left to right shunt, so something in excess of 2 to 1 QP to QS. And really, if you are seeing dilation of the right-sided heart chambers, the right atrium and right ventricle, that usually is indicative of a significant uh, a volume overload that would reach criteria for intervention. And then you're 
also going to want to see if there are any other uh, cardiac malformations that also require correction. So if they also had an associated VSD or something else that would already reach, could be a criteria for intervention. And then also if you have a patient that you have evidence or concern for secondary pulmonary hypertension as a result of the increased volume load from up the right side of the heart to the pulmonary vasculature, if that increased pulmonary vascular resistance is reactive, meaning it responds to either inhaled nitric oxide or high uh, FiO2 of oxygen, that patient would also reach criteria for intervention. In the neo-infants who present with symptoms, uh, again, it's a little bit, it's important to really ascertain what all is contributing to their congestive heart failure symptoms and what, if possible, you can remediate to get this child to be able to grow and get bigger before you need to do anything. So seeing if there is an aeropulmonary collateral vessel that could be coil embolized to help reduce the QPDQS. Any other associated intracardiac abnormalities, such as a significant VSD that could be closed to help this patient become less symptomatic. Um, once you reach about three or four years of age, it would be reasonable to proceed with repair. For children who are presenting as infants, because you're baffling a vein, a low pressure system, um, you do have a significant risk for stenosis and uh, having a more challenging repair. So in that population, if at all possible, you'd try to push out their intervention until they're a little bit bigger by trying to just better manage their heart failure symptoms or removing other things that are contributing to their heart failure. So what are the different operative approaches for scimitar syndrome? So there are uh, many different approaches that are reported in the literature. I think a lot of it tends to be surgeon preference of what you've had the best results and experience with. Again, this is a very rare lesion, so even the busiest congenital heart surgeons are only going to see a small handful of scimitar uh, patients over the course of their career. Um, First, it's helpful to know if there is an existing atrial level shunt, so a PFO or atrial septal defect that you could baffle the veins across. So that could be done via sternotomy. Uh, occasionally, it may require a brief period of hypothermic circulatory rest to be able to adequately visualize the scimitar vein entering into the inferior vena cava and creating a baffle through the atrium, either through an existing atrial septal defect or a created or enlarged atrial septal defect. Obviously, that's going to involve the use of some baffle material that does have the potential to have problems with developing obstruction over time, so it needs to be monitored. Uh, some other surgeons are preferred to directly reimplant the scimitar vein from the inferior vena cava onto the left atrium itself. This gives you a more direct connection. However, it can be a little bit difficult because you may end up putting that scimitar vein on a bit of uh, stretch or tension or some torsion and the last thing you want to do is create any obstruction to pulmonary venous return. As we mentioned earlier, many of these patients may have mesocardia or dextrocardia and so in that situation your left atrium is going to be much more posterior and remote from where your scimitar vein is so direct reimplantation may be a little bit more challenging in that population. There have been people that have reported doing a direct reimplantation without cardiopulmonary bypass in you know larger pediatric and adult patients uh, by simply uh, disconnecting the scimitar vessel from the IVC and just using a clamp on the left atrium directly to it into the left atrium. One other option that has been reported but certainly is not the favorite approach is if you have a patient who has a severely hypoplastic right lung or has had significant parenchymal damage as a result of recurrent pulmonary infections, you could consider a lung resection, um, either just the affected lobes or if it involved uh, all the venous drainage of the right lung 
doing a full pneumonectomy. Um, those have certainly been associated with less ideal outcomes and would not be the preferred approach in general for most patients. What are the outcomes um, like for patients with scimitar syndrome? So the outcomes are really highly variable and they're dependent upon um, the, if the patient has associated pulmonary hypertension or other associated lesions or comorbidities that may drive their outcomes. Um, obviously, as we mentioned before, patients who are presenting as infants usually have worse prognoses, but again, they're the patients who are more likely to have some element of hypoplasia of the right lung, additional aortic pulmonary collateral, and may also have some other uh, intracardiac defect that's more significant than a simple atrial septal defect. In terms of repair type, there's really has never been any demonstrated superiority of either a reimplantation technique or baffle repair. It really is highly dependent upon the patient's underlying anatomy. There are a rare uh, number of patients who will present with obstruction of their scimitar vein, and so those patients are obviously at increased risk for recurrent obstruction of even with reimplantation. So those patients are at a bit of a higher risk, similar to other anomalous pulmonary venous return where they present with associated obstruction, they're at higher risk for later obstruction. And what kind of long-term follow-up or monitoring do these patients need? So um, as I tell any patient who's requiring heart surgery as a child, um, you need lifelong monitoring just to make sure that nothing else comes up over time. The main issues that you're looking for in these patients is the development of obstruction of the pathway of their pulmonary venous return over to their left atrium. Because if you develop pulmonary venous obstruction, you can then get secondary pulmonary hypertension with a nut lung that would be concerning. So you'd want to know if they are developing obstruction of whatever pathway has been created. Uh, depending on the patient's body habitus, this can either be done with simple echocardiography or occasionally will require intermittent cross-sectional imaging such as MRI, which at least does not require any additional radiation, or CT if that's what is uh, preferred in any individual institution. And then obviously for any patient who has significant congenital heart disease that's required an intervention, for our female patients we'd recommend that they should have uh, prenatal screening of any future pregnancies because there is a slight increased risk of congenital heart disease. Thank you so much, Dr. Romano, for your time. For more educational topics, please like and subscribe to the TSRA podcast. Thanks for listening.